we are continuing our study concerning the doctrine of church discipline. And we have, as of this last Lord's Day, moved on to the question of removing someone from the church. And so we continue in this area of excommunication, and then what does it mean to remove that individual from the church? And I hope that you're beginning to see that discipline isn't something that is done for the benefit of myself. If I never have to discipline another person again the rest of my life, I would be a very happy minister. We've had in our church for, I guess, going on almost 25 years, Dave Darden never once disciplined. You know why? Self-governing. Don't have to. I've never put and approached JP and said, we have a problem with you. We're going to have to put you under discipline. We haven't done it with Jason. We haven't done it with Glenn. Why? Are these men perfect? No. Far from it. We're saved by the grace of God. But we are not glorified. We're going to sin. But the question is, are they seeking to govern their lives according to the word of God? My wife has been with me in all 47 years of ministry, and not once. Not once have I disciplined her, although she beats me on a constant basis all the time. And it's elder abuse now that I'm over 65. But that's another story to be told another day. Seriously, why? Why do some people need to be disciplined and some do not? It really gets into the question of how cognizant of are you of your doctrine of the law of God and how that you govern your life from day to day? Who binds your heart and mind? Christ through his word? Or are you determined to Lay out the parameters for yourself. We speak the right words, but we have no life that follows those words. They become empty. It reminds me of a Job. When he began to question God, God said, Hey, who are you to approach my throne? 
with words that have no meaning, words without knowledge. purpose that I hope you've been seeing is church discipline isn't a bad thing. It's for the benefit and that it truly is an expression of not only God's grace and love, but our love for each other because we're all involved in it. It's not Leadership versus the congregation. Guess what? I'm in the congregation. I'm a part of the body of Christ. I answer to somebody. Human, too. I answer to the Presbytery. And that Presbytery answers to the General Assembly. There is nobody that sits without being accountable. That's the whole point. What's our goal? To make people miserable? They tend to do that for themselves pretty good. No, the goal is that they can have the assurance of the love of God in their life, their commitment to Christ, and know without any reasonable doubt, I know today if I die. I'm not saying you earn it by doing righteous, but you are righteous because Christ lives in you. It's a struggle. And discipline is to help you when the struggle becomes so great you become overwhelmed by our enemy. Well, the doctrine of church discipline, sermon number 19. We're going to continue with sermon 18. And we're going to look at the last part of that because it deals with some important questions of practicality. We have said that Matthew 18, 15 through 20 pretty much rightfully frames the concept of church discipline. Again, listen, Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. <clears throat> if he hears you, you have gained a brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, that is both those who are in authority and the body of Christ itself, you, the congregation, let him be to you, not just to me. This is to you. 
unless you simply are going to say, I'm not a Christian. Okay, then it wouldn't be to you. But if you say, I'm in Christ, this includes you. You can't get around it. It boxes you in. Like I told you, if I could drop something out of the ministry, it'd be this. Who wants to be in a position that you might have to be in confrontation with somebody over their sin? You've heard it said, there's nothing worse in life than a woman scorned. Yeah, there is. Have to deal with a Christian who's in sin. So-called, professed. He may be, may not be, I don't know. <clears throat> his life will tell you the story. We're going to look at his fruit. But I'll guarantee you this, if they're in sin, they're going to fight you every step of the way. Because they're going to make it about anybody but themselves. Well, he says, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Do you even think about that? Is it just words? When we have agreed that we're going to have to deal with this person, we ask God to bind that judgment that we have to make in heaven as it would be bound upon earth. And whatever we ask him to loose upon earth, to free from the sin, and to give them the ability, having repented, to walk in righteousness, that they'll be free. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So it is, we're now dealing with this really important question. What happens when we cannot get somebody to repent of their sin? What do we do? We do exactly what God commands. We've got no choice. He's told us what to do in dealing with sin. You must confront it. My goal here is a minister, not a police officer. I'm not going to handcuff you. I'm not going to beat you with the belly club. I'm not going to shoot you. I'm not going to hit you with my patrol car. Unless you get out in front of it and I don't see you. Then, but it isn't a patrol car. It's a truck. No, my job is to say to you, my dear brother or my dear sister, you cannot live this way and say you're of Christ. 
It's a contradiction. You're literally living a lie. And it's not going to end well. Because God will not remove his justice for your sin. Payday comes. It's coming down the road. So we got to this question and we said, well, there's a point. We say to them, you cannot take the Lord's Supper. Why? Because there's no union with Christ. Your life doesn't say, I am in union with Christ. We remove the Lord's Supper. We remove all of your voting rights within the church. You're suspended in essence from any and all activity. And we tell it to the church and we exhort the church to begin separating themselves from them. When you see them, your job is to say to them, I love you, I care for you, but I cannot partake of your sin. You need to make things right with Christ and with his bride, the church. So removal in this case means he needs to be removed from what? The care and discipline of the church. Discipline's over. You're not a believer. We're not going to deal with this any longer. Unless you come and repent of your sin, we are done with you. And what are we going to do? We're going to turn you over to God and say, God, we've done everything you commanded. But we've had to wash our hands of this person. They will not repent. I didn't say they wouldn't live in perfection. I said they wouldn't repent of living in their sin. We are unable. We cannot continue to care for them and to discipline them, to disciple them, if you will, because they will not. Yield to your authority. My authority is a derived authority. I don't have any authority on myself. It only comes from Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the one that commands us what we're to do. Well, in this whole aspect of this, Paul's approach, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5.13 comes from the Old Testament itself, and it occurs six times in the Septuagint, which is the concept of the Old Testament being translated into the Greek. The difference here is Paul's use of the text turns the indicative of the Old Testament into an imperative. It would seem that Paul is endorsing the use of this Old Testament formula as a proper method. Hence the title of this sermon being the Declaration of Removal. 
The adoption of the Old Testament formula shows how serious the Apostle Paul is in this, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament calls for what? The death of an unrepented sinner. An action that we elders and we as the body of Christ, as church members, an action we cannot take. So I promise you, I'm sure there are those out there who have said, you better be careful. Those people at Christ Presbyterian Church, if you get into sin, when they discipline you, they're going to kill you. I don't have a buried body anywhere on my property. This church does, but I don't think they died from church discipline. It was probably old age. But I don't have bodies buried anywhere. We didn't lame anybody, you know, just bust their leg, bust an arm, kneecap them. Didn't do any of that. But they did in the Old Testament. The New Testament does not allow for this, as I said. But it does show the severity of the penalty of removal. Paul's use of the Old Testament for the removal also shows that this act of discipline is a true judicial act. <clears throat> we are making a legal declaration. The New Testament equivalent in this judicial act is the equivalent of the Old Testament stoning. But we don't stone. We're not going to throw stones at you. Unless you throw them at first, then I'll throw them back at you. But seriously, we don't do that. As a matter of fact, we don't even come around and knock on your door and say, hey, we want accounting of how you're living your life for the last week, for the last month. What have you been doing? We tell you what your duty is, but we expect you to be mature enough to do it. Do I really need to be like a father to you and walk around and say, did you pick up your toys? Are you studying your Bible? Are you reading it? Are you learning from it? Are you having prayer? Are you seeking to do everything you can do in the way that God would be pleased in you doing it? Is that the kind of instruction you absolutely have to have? that it has to be hands-on in your home, in your face? Well, if I don't go in their home and if I don't withstand them to their face, they'll never make it. My answer is, is that's not my job. I don't go in your home and make those demands. But I make those demands here about your home. 
1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 32, the Apostle Paul says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Listen to the church as it's in trouble. Since you come together, what? For the better, not for the better, but for what? The worse. He's talking about the Lord's Supper when they gather together at church. And it's time to celebrate this table. Listen to what Paul says. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe. Who are you to divide the body of Christ? We are the family of God. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, It is not to eat the Lord's Supper as if it is a dinner, a meal. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Paul says here, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul says, now listen, this is what I got from God. This is what I've delivered to you. You better listen up to what God has said. That The Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take it, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is of the new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Here is the visible sign of the gospel. That we are to eat by faith. It's not just a dinner. This is the gospel in visible form. And we by faith eat expecting the blessing of the blood and of the body of Christ that was broken for us. And the promises that he has given in the gospel to us. And you proclaim what? The Lord's death. Till he comes. Examine yourself. Now, now listen to the imperative. Examine yourself. First thing you must do before you come to this table. Examine yourself. 
Take note. Take personal inventory of your attitude and of your desire to honor God. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he's talking about in a way that is not for the purpose that it is designed, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. How are you living your life? What's your attitude? For what purpose have you come to the body of Christ? You've come to worship God or have you come to have a meal? But then he further goes on and says, let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. You see, this is the problem. You bring the judgment upon you when you sin against God's commands. That's where I come into play. That's where the elders come into play. The pastors come into play. That's where you come into play. We don't want somebody eating this and bringing judgment down upon them. No, no. He says, thus not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak. This is the judgment. For this reason, you're either weak, sick, and many have died. Which is what he means by sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, you get the key here? When somebody is judging themselves rightfully, we will not be judged by God. Sometimes you need help along the way. And you come and say, would you counsel us? Yes. We're in sin. Will you help us? Yes. We're not doing the things God has commanded. Can you instruct us? Of course. We don't even recognize our own sinfulness. Will you tell us? Yes. But the first duty is you examine yourself. Know how you're living. But he says, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. What's the goal? Not to be condemned with the world. How does God take a child of his and push him back into where he belongs? He judges him. Sometimes they're just weak. Sometimes they're even sick, and sometimes he just has to kill them to get them out of the way. 
because they're the most and the largest danger to themselves. Here we see God struck members with illness. And this is the rub, as they say. If churches are faithful and disciplined, God need not bring judgment. He need not intervene. Faithful churches are therefore under the protection of God, not subject to his chastisement. And you better be careful about judging churches. When they're doing what God has commanded. You're not God. And it's just, I'll bet 10 to 1, he'll take exception to it. And you're not going to like it when he does. Because his answer is, they don't answer to you. They answer to me. Keep your nose out of their business. Respect them. Honor them for what they're seeking to do. Now, we live in a time where churches just hate that. The times and the culture has changed. Oh, we don't do that anymore. Then you will be judged by God for it. Because then you're not faithful. A faithful church is a church that is doing what God said to do. That's all. Nothing more. While the destruction of the flesh speaks of the physical abuse by Satan that God's going to turn him over to, there is also a remedial function to the termination action. First Timothy 1.20 says, Of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme God. That's in New Testament times. When there comes a point in time when you cannot do anything because somebody will not stop blaspheming living in their sin, telling God this is none of your business, telling his bride, the church, we don't care what God told you to do. We're not going to listen. There's a point where we're going to say, you know what, we can't care for him. And we're going to remove our discipline from them, turn them over to you, O God, and have you use Satan as your whipping boy to come and beat them back into submission. And you know what? He's got some of the meanest ways to get you back. Thus Paul speaks of handing over these two individuals to Satan. Why? So they might be taught a lesson. The church was not able to do it. Even Paul couldn't correct him. They weren't going to listen to Paul. Now you would think, would you not, 
having seen the ministry of Paul, although maybe at the end of this time period, some of those gifts are clearly waiting to the church. But the miraculous power and everything, Christ is resurrected, the people have been sick and have died, Satan has been used to beat people into submission. You would think when Paul says, you two need to get your act together, they would sit up and go, oh, what are we doing wrong? We'll do it. We'll do it right. What are we doing? You see how sin affects people? Didn't help them. Put them in rebellion to the apostle. It's the one consolation I have when people get mad at the pastors, the elders of the church. Well, they got mad at Paul too. They wouldn't listen. I'm not in bad company. I'm certainly not of the stature of Paul, that's for sure. In short, unlike the Old Testament Removal Act, which led to death, the New Testament has a remedial function. Let's look at the accompanying procedures and records. We do keep records once we file. We keep records, accounts, not unlike a civil court. An ecclesiastical court functions much the same way. You will be charged for the violation of the word of God. And the church will keep this active. In the presbytery, it will be kept so that if anybody comes and asks, we'll tell them, well, you know, this individual, we did everything we could do to get them to do what was right, and they wouldn't do it. And here's what happened. This is a part of the good order of the church that we are to do. It's also important that we have the written procedures for discipline, how to proceed. You need to know. You have a book of church order. You're taught that your responsibility to adhere to it, to read it, and to learn it, just like the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms. Clearly, the process needs to be understood. And I think there is a place for that. In thinking about these things, I think there's a time and a place that we ought to be having where we actually have a class for everybody to know how to proceed. If someone sins against you, you need to know how to proceed. What do you do when you take two or three witnesses? What do they do? How do they write it down? How is it recorded when you have to go to the church to tell them? Two things here merit notice. When members unite with the church, they should not only make a profession of faith, but are also to agree to submit to the authority and to the discipline of the church, in particular, those who have been given that responsibility as the elders. If you think, if 
I would have known what this meant. Then I would not have joined. Then you have a spiritual problem. Because if you'll look at our book of church order, it's based on scripture. We footnoted scripture in every part of it. There are Presbyterian denominations out there that have no scripture to their book of church order. You don't know if it's from the word of God or not. You can be charged in some of those churches for contumacy. You know what that is? Let's say that Sam comes to me. Let me use Sam. I've never got to use Sam before. Sam, you're an illustration. today. And, and he comes to me and he says, can I meet with the elders? I need to get some advice. And so we go in. We look at him and say, this is what we think you ought to do. This is what the word of God says. You would need to go do it. Sam doesn't do it. We bring him in and say, what did what'd you do? Nothing. Haven't got around to it yet. You need to get around to it. I, I will when I can. No, we told you to get around to it. You know what that is when we say we told you? You remember when mom and dad said, well, why do I have to do that? Because I told you so. That's contumacy. When the elders just simply say, because we told you so. Maybe the formula for what he needed to do is in the scripture. But that was their way of seeing how to proceed. Not that a scripture supported what they did, but this is what they thought was best. They can charge him with contumacy. You didn't listen to us. Our denomination doesn't allow for that. We will charge you for not listening, but on the basis that you violated the scripture. And that we were upholding the scripture. The question of contumacy was brought up at one of our assemblies when I said, I have a real problem with this. It just means whatever I tell someone, if I don't like the way they've done it, I can nail them. With discipline. I don't think any of us have that right. Should they listen? Yes. Based upon the command and directives of the word. Not one on. I think. Well from now on Sam when you come to church. I want you in a three piece suit. I want a white shirt. A black suit. A black tie. Polished shoes and white socks. We're a little bit of a of a hillbilly group here. And he says, eh, I don't want well, the principle is when you come to church, you're coming to what? Worship God. We want you to dress the best you can. Hey, Sam, this is what we expect. You don't do it, we're gonna come down hard on you. That's contumacy. There's nothing in scripture that says he has to wear a three-piece suit. Nor does he have to wear a white shirt, a black tie, black shoes and white socks. Do you see what I'm talking about? 
It's not because I told you so. It's because this is what God commanded, and this is the authority he gave to us to get this straightened up in your life. Very important. At every point, but especially at the trial and dismissal from the church, we'll keep a set of records of all that has taken place. The findings and the basis should be preserved in its minutes as well. Records of any letter sent to summons a brother needs to also be preserved. And we do. And it may be a burdensome, but it is necessary to do all that work. Upon the repentance of the sinning brother, the matter can be closed officially and substantiate that repentance and reconciliation was achieved. All records, all records are kept for a twofold purpose, to safeguard the church and to protect the brother who was under discipline at the time. Terminal discipline causes the church to mourn. That's not our goal. That would never be our goal. 1 Corinthians 5.2 And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Why don't you grieve over that? As Pastor Jason said in his class, if the goal here was for us to make a side job and make money, putting you under discipline is not a very good way of doing it, is it? The first thing a person does when they get under discipline is they stop tithing. I'll teach you a lesson. You're not going to get this money. Nope. Not one red cent. But why should the church mourn? It is for this reason. To search its conscience to see whether it shares in part of the guilt. We should have said something sooner. And we failed our brother or our sister. In a real sense, metaphorically speaking, this fifth step is what? It's a funeral. We're declaring you dead spiritually. And like the Old Testament procedure, the new does not allow for us to do anything other than to make the declaration. And the attitude of good riddance is improper for a church. But you'll see that most churches you go to, they'll say, well, they left. Good riddance. They were horrible. I know people can try your patience. But they're still children of God. And our job is to work with them. And that might be distasteful in some ways. But what's the hope? Restoration, reconciliation, proper attitude, actions, 
in their life. Governing them self-appropriately. Now, there's a question. We are to have oneness of mind, we have said. When we separate from someone, we say to them, I can't participate in your sin. I will not participate in your sin. You need to get right so that we can continue in our friendship. But what about family members who come under discipline? Oh, that's as hard, let me tell you. Been there, done that. Not easy. The question is, how far do we extend the rule of the apostle toward persons rejected out of the church? where we have exhortation like 1 Corinthians 5.11, with such a one, do not eat. And also, when our scripture says, note that man and have no company with him, or note the individual, that he may be what? Ashamed, 2 Thessalonians 3.14. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to deal with it when you got a church member that goes and gets put under discipline? First, it's important to note that the word eat comprises all ordinary conversation and things of this life. We're told in our prayer to pray, give us our daily This is either the act of the church in accordance with scripture, setting the mark of its censure and disapproval of him. That's why we don't eat with him. It is the duty of members of the church to take notice of that individual whom is under discipline and unto the end of not keeping company with him. The rule of scripture thus forbids all ordinary conversations of choice, not that which is occasional. That means done infrequently. Casual. Oh, did you did you watch this show last week? Let's go, let's go out and let's just let's go eat, let's go have a good time, let's go do this, let's go do that. No, there's times you can't violate the law of God towards somebody under discipline. You're called to follow the law of God. What happens when this becomes a family member? Conversation about earthly secular things, not that which is spiritual. For such a one may and ought still to be admonished while he will hear the word of admonition. Somebody calls and says, I haven't got to see you in a month. I'd like to come over. Maybe have dinner. And they're relatives. Okay. They're family. 
But the conversation doesn't deal with spiritual issues. It doesn't deal with anything except an exhortation of admonishment. The only thing spiritually you need to say is, you know we do not agree with you. You're under discipline and you need to repent. Now you want to talk about, I've got a job and I'm working. I'm having this problem, that problem. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. This is not something that's done on a regular basis. It's occasional. That's what it means. It is such a conversation as it is not made previously necessary by men mutual agreements. For example, contracts. Say you own a business and the family's involved into it. All of a sudden, the president and vice president, one of them is out of the church. They're under discipline. What do you do? You can't set that aside. You have an obligation to deal with the business together. To deal with business, not with pleasure. Business dealings is a valid function especially when it's a family member, but in particular, even as a business partner, you may have to do that. But again, what is the spiritual admonition? I'd love to be able to go out and have dinner with you and your wife. We used to do that and go to the movies and have a good time and come over and visit and everything. But you know what? You're living in sin. We cannot partake of your sin. Thus the rules of right and equity under such obligations, family of business relationships, those things that are common to life like unto that. Excommunication cannot dissolve it. Excommunication does not dissolve your relationship to husband to wife, to parents to children, to brother to sister, sister to brother, to cousins. There's still family. You still have family duties and obligations. If they come and say, hey, I've got a real problem. For example, somebody comes and says, hey, you know what? I can't get my car started. Could you help me with that? Nothing wrong with you going and helping them. As a matter of fact, say, yeah, you know why I did this? Because out of the kindness of God, I am to treat you like the law of God would require to be benefit and helpful. What I can't do is go out then and have dinner with you once we do. We don't burn family bridges. The door to restoration is to always be open to our families. Third, no suspension of duties antecedently necessary by virtue of natural or moral relation is allowed. Continence by this very rule, such as those of husband and wife, which I just noted, parents and children, Magistrates and subject. Well, you know, the magistrate, he was a member of our church. He got excommunicated. 
I don't have to obey the civil magistrate. Yes, you do. God does not do away with that relationship. Neighbors. Relationships of in blood, family, or extended. No duties arising from or belonging unto any of these relationships are released for the obligation is for us to keep them and they are not weakened by the excommunication. You understand? Spiritual things, I can't just go out and do like we used to do. I used to go out and we used to golf three days a week. I can't do that anymore. You have ended up under discipline and sin. Hey, my friend, my car broke down. Can you come and help me? Of course. Hey, let's go golfing. I can't. Hey, let's go out and have a big dinner together and just have a good time. I can't. Hey, let's celebrate this or celebrate. I can't. Celebrate birthdays? Yeah, family. You bet. Obligations that God has created that are duty bound, you must keep. Does it make it hard? You bet it does. But it also will teach you how to pray for your loved ones. And those who have authority over you. Thus, what I'm saying is husbands may not forsake the duties to their wives or wives to their husbands. Magistrates cannot withdraw their protection from their citizens because they are excommunicated. Well, you got excommunicated out of the church. Somebody comes down the street, going to kill you. We're not going to protect you. You're on your own, buddy. Much less subjects withhold their obedience on any pretense of an excommunication of their magistrates. The same is true as all other natural and moral relations. The ends of this prohibition are, one, to testify of the condemnation of sin and the disappropriation of the person's guilt of it who is excommunicated. Hey, you committed adultery on your wife. You're destroying your family. I am not going to be a part of your sin. You need to get right with God. But I will not I will not go outside of those duties I'm bound to for pleasure and enjoyment and fellowship where you have broken it, where you have chosen to broke, to destroy it from your sin. The preservation of herself from all kinds of participation in their sin ought to be one of the things that we're looking at. To make that individual ashamed of themselves 
if they be not utterly reckless and given up to total apostasy, but rather that it may give occasion for him to thoughts of returning to repentance. I loved my life. I loved my friends. I loved being in a relationship with them. I loved having a good time, fellowship. And I've sinned. And I've done that dastardly deed myself. I didn't make him sin. Sinned on his own part. Church didn't tell him to go out and sin. We never say that. We say don't sin. Fight sin all your life. But we've never told anyone you have no duties or obligations on those things that God has already preordained and requires. Husbandly duties to wives, wifely duties to their husbands, parents to their children, children one to another as they grow up and become responsible for their actions, cousins, aunts, uncles, magistrates, citizens, business partners. You have obligations in all of this. You're not free to walk from those. You must fulfill your obligations. But when it comes to spiritual discussion, hey, you know, we used to get together and drink coffee and talk theology. Yeah, that's before you fell into sin and got in trouble. You need to repent. I can't fellowship that way with you anymore. Not until you're restored. And we ought to be ashamed to be in public with someone who's committed such a sin, especially that is known publicly. Why would you want to be with them? Why would you want to have to answer to God for but at the same time, anybody that is excommunicated, anybody that's been removed from the care and discipline of the church, I tell you, we cannot treat them except for as God would have us to extend our kindness, our love, our long-suffering, and fulfilling the law of God in our life toward them. We're not allowed to lie to them. We're not allowed to cheat them. We're not allowed to steal from them. We're not allowed to do anything that would be a violation of the law of God. Our job is still to uphold the law of God in that terms or conditions that pre-exist, whether it be family or business or neighbor, whatever the case may be. But the fellowship, that eating, drinking, making merry, having a good time, that's off the table. It's off the table. It's what 
door to gossip. And that's not easy. And so loved ones, yeah, comes, for example, Christmas or Thanksgiving or a birthday and you have a dinner, that's, that's fine. Family. That's a family function. Okay. But you don't have that every week. Because they're in sin. And your goal was to get them, get their feet out of hell and get them back on the path to righteousness. There's a lot of work. This is not easy. It's complex. You got to think through these things. But you know, the thing that I want to tell you is, If you're faithful, so is God. He's always faithful. And sometimes when you do what is right, he brings the restoration that you know he alone can do it. And he honors you. Because you did what was right. Not what you thought was right what was according to the word of God. Discipline is not a bad thing. It's real discipleship. We must see it as one of God's means of restoration in this life of those who have committed sin and a broken communion with God and union with the church. And our goal is not to say good riddance. Our goal is to say, oh God, please let him return in repentance that we can once again have that love and fellowship that we Shall we pray?